face melting. Live from the studio, I'm Jimmy Seleski. I'm Eric Glazer. And uh, we're here with a very special guest, Adam Ferrara. It's Ferrara, right? Not Ferrara. No, it's Ferrara. How are you, fellas? I'm good, good, man. I appreciate you. Uh, I, again, that, that song I've heard in the past, mm-hmm. but uh, I didn't know what it was called. Father Christmas? Yeah. yeah. It, it's also kind of like as a musician thing. Mm-hmm. You told me on the way while we were driving everywhere around Baltimore, you were telling me how you're a musician yourself. Well... Well, you you're using you, the term loosely. Well, you played in bar bands. That's what I do. So let's just go ahead and call that a musician. Yeah, because then right. Jamie can call himself yeah, a musician. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't call yourself a musician, then I can't call myself the a musician. The current day, competence doesn't matter. <laughs> it's weird with the Christmas album because it's like, I feel like you put so much effort into making a song, mm-hmm. but if you make a Christmas song, then you can only, it's only relevant for like one month out of the year. And someone right. said, do you really want to waste your musicality? On one month out of the year. Well, look at it this way: long term, you're gonna get you're gonna get long term once a year for a while. Yeah. Or you're gonna have a song that's popular and nobody wants to hear it. I mean, do you really want to hear Bobby McFerrin? Don't worry, be happy anymore. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. But I do Christmas songs. <laughs> all right. They're pretty timeless. You can have mine. Like, because uh, every year, all the same songs still play. Like, yeah. Let It Snow still plays. When did that come out? The eighties? Yeah, but the problem with the problem with Christmas well, it, the oldest recorded song ever, I think, or is uh, White Christmas by Bing Crosby. No, right? I think the, the the oldest recorded song is Yeah. <laughs> That's probably it. That's probably it. But they dude, they recorded that song in like nineteen forty eight. I didn't even realize yeah. they had recordings back then, dude. Mm. You know? I wonder if the, did they just like record straight to a record? Like, how did recordings back then work? I have no clue. All I know is the problem with Christmas music is I want to listen to "Step Into Christmas" by Elton John right. all the time. Okay, that might be you can do it. I have a, I have a Christmas tree at my house all the time. Really, year round in the kitchen. I have a Santa Claus uh, in my house all the time and a pumpkin at all times. Okay, it never leaves <laughs> and right. uh, it makes it easy. To makes do what? <laughs> to not have Listen, to decorate. It makes it easy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't want to know what happens to you and There's your husband a... Jackalant. It's none of my business. Oh man. It's also a giant yellow M&M in his apartment. Yeah. And yeah, that well, really helps. That's, that really makes it <laughs> yeah. easy. That really makes it easy. We don't know what it is. Obviously, you don't have a peanut allergy. Yeah, whatever good. you're trying to do, it is the peanut one. So uh this is uh you're doing a little weekend stint at McGooby's. How often do you come to Baltimore? How many times? I haven't have been, been here as well. In fact, we try to figure out the last time I was here. I think the last time I was here was about four years ago. Mm. I was it's my deals. Like I was touring for a while, and then I was doing uh, um, uh, Top Gear, which was a car show, and then I would tour when I wasn't shooting that show. But then I got another gig on um, Nurse Jackie, so I went from that show to that show. So I haven't toured in a while. Yeah. So that's why I'm like, oh, I gotta get back. And you, you know, boys, you gotta spend time in the garden to make the flowers grow. Yeah, you know, that's a good sign. These pumpkins just don't show up. Yeah, <laughs> to make things easy. Yeah, man. So I, uh, uh, I put out uh, another. Uh, I put out an album, and it. it did really well. Is that and the most I, recent you know, one you recorded at Gotham? No, that's the second one. I put out the first one was called Unconditional. Okay, mm-hmm. and uh, that one did really well. I got uh, album of the year. Intro Bang made it comedy album of the year, and then someone from James Corden heard it, so I did a James Corden spot, and then the record company says, "Well, we want another one." I'm like, "Me and my big mouth." Yeah, <laughs> so I did another one, and uh, uh, now the the uh, video was just released. I recorded it at Gotham in New York, and it's on YouTube. Uh, 
800-pound gorilla records. Just put in my name, Adam Ferrara. And this is, is that the one that's, uh, this is scary in here? Yeah, or it's, it's called scary? scary in here. The yeah. picture of my head coming out of my head. <laughs> so how did that, I mean, I'm assuming you started out as a stand-up or did you yeah. start out as an actor? No, I started out as a stand-up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, I started acting. And, um, you know, when you start out, you I'll be honest with you, I didn't want to learn how to act because I thought I was going to screw up being funny. Mm-hmm. You know, that was a... Not, not that it's every comic sphere, but most of the comics I started with were like, well, you know, we we found this great thing. We don't want to mess it up. Yeah. But the truth is, it's it makes you a better stand-up because it doesn't. You're you're writing from your point of view, but you can also learn to see um, other characters in the story you're telling, mm-hmm. and it, it takes you out of yourself and puts you into another uh, an, another perspective to write from. So it's nothing but beneficial. So when I learned how to act, um, I was fortunate enough to start getting comedy roles, and then I got a drama role. Really? Yeah. So I got I played the bad guy on Law and Order, and then <laughs> and then I got uh, then I got um, re- uh, a show called uh, The Job with uh, Dennis Leary. We played cops, where it was a single camera dramedy thing, and it was the precursor to Rescue Me, which okay. was the same thing. Yeah. Which is an actor's dream because I got to be funny and serious and stuff, and the writing was great, and I got to be in that show, and then. Now, when you, I believe I was watching some older stand-up from you last mm-hmm. night. It looked like it was probably in the early 2000s, maybe late 90s. Right. But uh, was there a period in, you were, as you were telling me earlier today, you were born in Queens. Yeah. You then moved out to Long Island, mm-hmm. grew up there. I didn't, my parents didn't. Your parents with didn't. Them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, you, did you live in L.A. for a period of time? I did. I moved to L.A. Uh, in 93. I got uh, I got a TV deal. So it took me from being a poor comic in New York to being a poor comic in L.A. Yeah, that's Perfect. what I was going to ask. I didn't know if maybe the, the acting thing came after moving out to Los Angeles or if that was no, why it you was came. No, it was a... Well, I, I started studying it in New York because I had got... I'd come out to L.A. when I first started doing stand-up to do uh, The Tonight Show. Um, and then uh, while I was there, I got a gig on a, uh, on a sitcom called Flying Blind, with Taya Leone and Corey Barker, and mm-hmm. I didn't know how to act. I knew how to be funny, but I was I got away with it. I yeah, that real, just like and comedic I realized, timing. Yeah, helps it's just a the lot. timing and yeah, the fact yeah. that it was a live audience and stuff. I'm like, oh, I don't know how to do this. Yeah, you can play to them. But I knew that I really enjoyed it, and I knew that there was a craft there that I was not aware of. And I'm like, all right, I got away with one, and I like this, so I gotta, I gotta learn this. I gotta get, I gotta put this club in my bag because I really want to do this again. Well, yeah. I. I at what age? Well, hey, what age did you start doing comedy? July thirteenth, nineteen eighty-eight. Wow, it was it was a Wednesday night open mic on my <laughs> Wednesday night. Yeah, so I don't know. What were you? I just got out of college. I was twenty, 21. early twenties. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And how long were you doing stand up before you got that TV deal? Because uh, that's like that's got to be like five that, years back in the eighties and nineties. That was like what everybody was shooting. Yeah, for, but it was right? a different. It's a different playing field. You know, mm-hmm. it was a whole totally different playing field. You know, it's not like it is now where you have, you know, we, we're doing we're doing this right now. We're, mm-hmm. we're, we're doing this, and in, in for all intents and purposes, for you guys watching it, this is a killing room. When we're not in here, these guys are shooting snuff. <laughs> <laughs> and it's coming straight from you to the audience. Yeah. You know, when when yeah. I was doing it, you would do the Tonight. There wasn't so many choices. And, mm-hmm. you know, I was, I was a young comic. And, and you're selling promise. You're selling, like, mm-hmm. you know, you're talking to a younger audience. You're selling promise. So, so how you do you – because I'm fascinated by that because obviously it's a different type of uh, – the entire method by which you get known or get something like that. Now mm-hmm. it's all social media-based and yeah. things like that. Back in the 90s, you're, you're, you're a New York comic. You're working the clubs yeah. for five years. And then what, does somebody come up to you after a show one day? I had hey, done I the MTV Half Power Comedy Hour, because this, this is when television producers found out that 
wait, comedy's cheap. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we can produce this. And every bar had a comedy night. Yeah. You know, the, I would find these little bookers. And I had a car. That's why I worked so much. Yeah, that's huge. I had a car and all the headliners in New York. What you would do is you would get these one-nighters in Jersey and Connecticut and all mm -hmm. the New York headliners. They live in Manhattan. They don't have a car. Yeah. So the deal was, you know, the opening act picks them up at the improv. There was an improv on 10th. And uh, I thought, all right, I'll meet you at the improv. I was on time. The car was clean. I opened for these other acts. I, I, I stick to my time. I was clean. I set them up. I didn't ruin the room. And when I drove them home, I'm like, I'm supposed to drive them at the improv. I'm like, you're going to get out of a car to get into a cab to get into another car to go home. Where do you live? I'll take you home. Okay. And I was on time. So they would request me, like, I want to work with Adam, because I knew what the job was. That's yeah. very similar to how our arrangement was, except for the being on time part for me. I definitely showed yeah, up. Yeah, I, I got a text. You want to do my podcast? Yeah. I need a ride to the rental car place, because I'm driving home after the gig tonight. Mm -hmm. Pick me up at the hotel. Pick up the car. I'll follow you back to the, to the, the killing room studio. <laughs> and, and they did. Jimmy came and got me. And that's what we did. Well, you, I sent that email, and normally, like, you know, it's always a shot in the dark. Uh, we sometimes get responses. A lot of times you hit up people's managers and things like that. I got a call from you pretty much immediately after I sent that email. And yeah. to, to the point where also you, it shows up as a private number on my phone, so I instinctively just don't pick up. You're smart. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And you picked up, and you were like, hey, Jimmy, it's Adam or whatever. And I was like, oh. I forgot I sent that email five minutes ago. Mm -hmm. It was impressive. We made that agreement to come up. And uh, yeah, I nailed, I nailed two out of three. I, I had a car. Mm -hmm. That's step one. Sure. I did actually vacuum it yesterday. Very good. Because I knew I was picking you up, and it was very dirty. All right. And I had been putting off vacuuming for a while. I also finally put the air freshener in there, too, which I hope you noticed. But uh, I yeah. did. Yeah, it smelled like you were trying to cover weed in a college dorm room. <laughs> I was like, who's this kid fooling? <laughs> actually, I was trying to cover the scent of kerosene, which is also what I'm doing in this studio with mm -hmm. all the incense, which, by the way, you can get one of those popping as well. Mm -hmm. Go for it. Yeah, but uh, but you were on the American Top Gear for a very long time. Yeah, that was fun. That's uh, so is that where the mole thing came out from? Yeah, we got or was the, the mole before that? Speedy Beardy and the mole is, mm -hmm. is our, our our alter ego for the three of us on the show. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we we all started. That show was great, and I love those two idiots. And those, I mean Rutledge Wood and Tanner Fouts because we mm -hmm. we just went all over the world, and uh, they they put me they boys they flew me to Germany. Yeah. They put me on the Autobahn. They gave me the brand new Lamborghini Hurricane. They put me in the left lane and they said, go. Jeez. Jeez. <laughs> put my foot in that thing and I hit 173. And if you're planning on doing it, it's exhilarating and fucking stupid. Yeah, I bet. Because you're just flying past these people making a TV show and Inga's just going to work. You know, it's just now, drifting are, into the left lane and it's all over. Are you well, a big that goes car along guy? like the mountains too, right? Like what? The Autobahn? It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's this whole, it's, it's a, a two-lane highway with no speed limit. Yeah, Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I loved cars. I love cars from my dad. I can't fix them. That's the thing, is I can't, I don't have the if-then-go-to state. And mm -hmm. the carburetor's gone now, so I don't even know how it works anymore. Now, you don't need a wrench anymore. You need a computer. You yeah, it sucks because the carburetor is one of the only parts that the average person can at least name. You can point to it. Yeah, it's on yeah. top. Yeah. It's yeah. under the air filter. <laughs> like if you're like driving with your girlfriend and then the car breaks down and you got to like at least step out and act like you know what you're doing. Yeah. It's like alternator, carburetor. Now, I don't necessarily know where those are in the car, but as long as I know the names of them, it makes yeah. me seem semi-legitimate. Well, I would look at it. I'm going, well, it's not getting gas or flooded. It's not getting a spark. It could be the, could be the road. It could be the coil. I don't, either way, we're calling someone to come get us, honey. I figured you were a car guy because when we went to the rental thing, I, it was like a bunch of like random, like not great cars. And mm -hmm. then she pulled up to the Dodge Charger for you and yeah. she started the engine. And it like blew me out. of. I was like, okay. There you go, baby. You're on this to go to Dunkin' Donuts. Okay? I'm, driving, I'm driving back to New York with a Hemi. Yeah. Hell yeah. Yep. 
Does uh, do anyone at like rental places ever be like, wait a second? Yeah. Are you the mole? Hell yeah. Yeah, I get that. The other thing that happens when, when the show was on the air, I would get picked up at the airport. You know, the guy in the, in the car would pick you up, mm-hmm. puts the car in the back, and it always goes, Top Gear? Yeah, you want <laughs> to see me hang it out? No, don't hang it out. <laughs> I just want I just want to get to that. I just want to get to the hotel. So they would drive like maniacs, and I was Jesus. like, oh, okay. Oh, wow. Wow. Like, let you're me on good. the show. Just let me out. That's got to be the worst thing when you're a car guy, because normally it's like if you're, a com- if you're just a comedian, people are like, oh, do something funny. Mm-hmm. If you're just a musician, like, oh, sing us a song. But if yeah. you're the car guy, then everybody's like, do you mind if I drive dangerously yeah. in front of you? Yeah, I'm doing this. I don't need this. I just want to you get love to point that, a right? Point B. <laughs> Jeez. So yeah, but I got to drive. I mean, they took they took the um, the GT40, the actual race car that won Le Mans '66. They took it out of the museum, and I got to drive it. Jeez. I only got to drive it eight feet because it's a mm-hmm. museum piece, but I got to drive it. So it's right hand drive because it's a race car, and mm-hmm. it was a European race car, so your steering was on the other side. You got to turn on the oil filter. You got to I mean, turn on the pump. You got to turn everything on. It's big. The carburetor's right by your head, and it's rear engine. Start it up. <laughs> flames are shooting out of the carburetor. Jeez. And the guys from the museum going, yeah, it does that. Like, Not by my head. <laughs> <laughs> so I got to drive it past the camera, right? And it's a, it's a stick, so the clutch really isn't set up. So the clutch doesn't catch until my knee is in my throat. And this is the first time I'm driving this thing on camera. So big cams rolling. I go right past the camera. Cut. The guys from the museum come over and goes, you did good. Most people stole it. <laughs> that, is a, that is a lost art, driving a, driving a manual stick, yeah. vehicle. Uh, and I know. And a right-hand drive stick is weird. Mm-hmm. Now, how do you feel as a car guy? Is yeah. there credence to manual cars driving better? Or is that just yeah, kind of a pretentious? Okay. You're more engaged. It's more fun to do. You can rev match, which means you don't need a clutch to shift. So you're not, you're not transferring the weight in a turn. So when you go into a turn, you know, you slow down. So the weight of the car, most cars are front engine. It goes, the, 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 uh, the front engine will dive and you transfer weight and it slows you down. So mm. if you could rev match, you're just, uh, you, it's, you, you don't need the clutch anymore. Truckers do that. They rev match. So you just get the, the, uh, the RPMs, and you go from one gear to another, and there's no weight transfer. That's so what rev matching is. That's called rev match. It's fun, and when you can, you know, and you can heel toe shifting. It's it's fun. It's a fun mm. little thing to do. I know the theories. I'm not good at it. The, the closest the I've theories. ever been is just putting my car into sport mode. There yeah, you go. Uh, I don't really know if that's <laughs> that's just like a little switch. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's like, dude, you just press down on the pedal. You well, go. Do you faster. like to drive? I I mean. Uh, it's definitely my favorite way of getting somewhere. Yeah, I, it's, I, and here's why I like to drive. It's like I'm doing just enough to keep that screaming part of my mind busy, yeah. but it's kind of after a while you zone. Like tonight, I'm going to drive. I'm going to do two shows tonight uh, if I get out of here alive. Yeah. I'm going to do two shows tonight, uh, and then I'm going to get in the car, the Charger, and uh, I, got, uh, I got an Audible account, so I'll listen to a lecture. I'll listen to a book or something on the way home. It's just me and my car heading home, middle of the night, no traffic. I love that. Do you get uh, any sort of like uh, anxiety when you're driving a car you're not familiar with? Because whenever I pick up a rental car, it takes like at least a day, honestly, to acclimate myself to the car. I don't really know what I'm doing. But I've had a different experience than you, Jimmy. I've driven so many cars. They threw me into pieces of shit and Mm -hmm. drive around that corner. You're going to jump this thing with this thing. So, you know, it's (laughs) like... Yeah, I read something where they put you guys in like a remote-controlled Camry or something. Oh, yeah. They put us in a remote control camera. Me and Rutledge Wood are in the back, and they lost. Con- and and we're right by a cliff. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus so we hit a tree. The remote didn't work, and I'm like, all right, this is it. You know, so <laughs> the remote failed, and it just yeah. kept going, and it kept going. Oh my god! And we we ended up. I think we ended up sliding into a tree. 
That's good. And I'm like, All right. yeah, there was. You know, you're in a fucked a up situation when that's a that's the best thing that happened. Was oh yeah, yeah we hit a tree. It's like oh great. Yeah, there were so <laughs> many things we That's did. That's good. I Glad almost drowned in Lake Ontario. We made amphibious um, amphibious boats, and I had a uh, I had a Jeep Wrangler, yeah. and I put it on a Boston Whaler. So I was driving, and I had an airboat motor behind me. So mm-hmm. to, and I had a, a motorcycle engine and a hand clutch. So I was sitting in the sitting in the Jeep, um, and I was driving. The motor's gone; it's just a Jeep frame. And I was supposed mm-hmm. to shift with the motorcycle, the hand clutch, and the motorcycle motor. And then when I got into the water, I would use the the airboat motor behind me. It's like a, it was a, it was a V six. I think it was yeah. like a Chevy. So the hand, I br- the chain breaks. The chain drive on the on the um, on the motorcycle engine breaks. So I got to use the airboat motor to get around. And no one told me I can't bring it up over uh, thirty five hundred RPMs because the tips of the blades break the sound barrier and you'll pop an eardrum. Nobody told me this. Oh, I was yeah. like, ah, it hurts. What the fuck? <laughs> I goes, yeah, I, I should have told you this. I'm like, oh, all right, fine. So. I get into the water. We, we launched these boats. These are homemade shit. I drew yeah. it up on a napkin. <laughs> Some guy made it in a shed. So yeah, we're drawing. Out of like and, scrapyard parts, probably. All, yeah. So I'm, we're in Lake Ontario. We get outside of the harbor, and it's, you know, there's a current. There's waves. So the back of the, I'm sitting in the Jeep. Thank God I didn't have my seatbelt on. And the water is filling up the back of the, is coming over the, uh, the little Boston whale or the back, the back of, the, of the hull. And it's coming into, so the weight balance is going, this, this is a, there's a V6 motor in the back of this thing. It doesn't take much to tip the weight balance. Yeah. And all of a sudden, God said, I want that. And the thing just sunk. Jesus. Uh, there's a hell, I think it might be on my Facebook page. There's a helicopter shot, because we had helicopters in. There wasn't a drone. The helicopter shot, and you just see the thing disappear. It's not like you can see it floating under the water like a shark. Or yeah. It's gone. Jeez, and there I gone. am. There I am just floating with a life jacket and a World War II army helmet on. <laughs> And that's just me floating around. You know, before you got to the, the end of that story, I was actually just thinking, why aren't amphibious vehicles a bigger thing? Because I, you know, you watch those old like History Channel things, they talk mm-hmm. about the amphibious like, yeah, landing crash where the front of the thing opens and, the, and then yeah. the planes come out. And it's like, you know, sometimes like if you're on a bridge, you're about to go mm-hmm. on like the Bay Bridge or something, it, I feel like it would be more convenient to just be like, I'll just drive my Nissan Altima right into the Hudson yeah, River. The one, do you ever, you ever, you ever do the duck tours in, in Boston? They have the duck boats from World War II. Yeah. yeah. They're not comfortable. Yeah, <laughs> they're all no, old. Well, like nothing a, was comfortable like back then. Yeah. I'm sure if we had 80 plus years of technology, technological advancement, we could have come up with a nice amphibious vehicle by mm-hmm. now. Like a nice like Honda Civic-esque, take it out, you know? Yeah. I mean, according to the Jetsons, we're supposed to have hovercraft at this point. Yeah. You know that show That's is true. based in the year 2000? Yeah. But it was written, what, the 60s? Yeah, well, mm-hmm. we really dropped the ball on that well, one. Also, apparently the Flintstones were at the bottom of those towers. Yeah. And that was that... in the crossover <laughs> episode. Yeah. <laughs> they were based in the year 1920. <laughs> the Flintstones was a remarkably better show than the Jetsons. I'm just going to put that out there. The Flintstones was actually the Honeymooners. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess it was. They took the same plot lines. I guess it was. There was a lot of crossover plot lines. But um, you have, we were also talking about when uh, you saw the, the guitar I had in the back, the Taylor. Mm-hmm. Which yep. I props for knowing that Taylor's are the best acoustic guitar, in my point. In uh, my I, I had a Martin D twenty eight that was really sweet. Martins are very nice. I prefer the brightness of yeah. the Taylor. They uh, got they got that they're in, they're in the same ovation has the same brightness, mm-hmm. but it's got that the the plastic back. It's good for travel, but and it's also good the ovations as an acoustic. They're good for band setting because a lot of mm-hmm. times they they have the right frequency range that when you're playing with a band, yeah. it fits in well. Whereas mm-hmm. the 
Martins and the Taylors, they have this very full body sound that you kind of got to EQ it out just to get a good sound out of yeah. it in the mix. But uh, I was going to ask, you know, we were talking about you have the podcast, which is yeah. uh, 30, sec- 30 minutes you'll never get back. Yeah, the Adam Farr podcast, 30 minutes you'll never get back. <laughs> How long have you been doing that? Uh, we're on episode like 135, 136, okay. and we're a weekly podcast. So a couple years, three years, yeah, four years? Yeah, about two years, I think. Two, it'll be, I think it'll be three years in July. And I started the thing, and I, I, I thank your you. Your weeks help. go faster than mine, I suppose. What? I said your weeks go faster than mine, I suppose. Yeah, You've well, been doing, well, if you're doing it for two years and you're doing weekly, you would think that you'd be up to like 100 episodes by now. Well, so I'm coming up, really I'm over really. three, I'm coming up, I'm over two, coming up to three, I guess. So okay. it's, it's been 135 weeks, whatever that is. And yeah. you have, you had guys like Steve, do you primarily get musicians? Like, No, I, I, here's the thing is I started the podcast, I, and I, I'll give you my show in a nutshell. When I was a kid, the best night's sleeps I ever had is when I was upstairs and I heard my mom and dad and their friends downstairs laughing. Mm-hmm. Don't know why. But I always slept well, and that was a feeling I liked. So I wanted to communicate that feeling. So my show opens with me, my wife, my two friends talking about a topic that connects to a one-on-one interview that I've done with a celebrity that they haven't heard and the audience hasn't heard. Cool. So then we cut to that. They hear the interview. And then like any good group of friends, we talk about them when they leave. Yeah. So then we (laughs) cut back, and we do another like 10 to 15 minutes after that half-hour interview. Like, did you hear when... Uh, Nathan Lane said this. Did you hear when Jay Leno said that? Did you hear when Joe Buck said this? So, mm-hmm. so it's it's a fun. It's like you coming over my house because that's what I wanted to. to Was that the concept from the jump, or did you kind of like yeah. build that? No, I had that from 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 uh, the very beginning. That's the concept I had. So now in getting the guests, um, it's really a collective. I have a bunch of comics on it: Gabriel Iglesias, Brian Regan, uh, 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 Roy Wood Jr. Cool, uh, Ronnie Chang. You know, a bunch of bunch of my friends, Jeff Ross, a uh, bunch of comics, bunch of actors that I work with. I had uh, I did a movie with Andrea Martin and, and Nathan Lane did one for me and uh, Edie Falco and the guys from The Sopranos, Michael Imperioli, Steve Sharippa. I just spoke to um, Steve Van Zant and wow. and it was people I wanted to talk to, boys. I have an excuse to reach out and bother them. Yeah, so yeah, we were talking yeah. about guitar players. I had Steve Vai on. Mm-hmm. Just a, a, a legend. I yes, had, I had Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top on, which I could talk about cars. Yeah, <laughs> and 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 music with him. I had mm-hmm. uh, uh, Richard Marks was on. Um, Steve Gorman, the drummer from the Black Crows. So I could just talk. Who to the was the guy? Something Johns. You had what was? It? Oh, I had Glenn Johns is Glenn on. Johns. I don't know when this is going to air, but this week Glenn Johns produced uh, the Beatles. Let it be. Mm-hmm. Uh, he produced Zeppelin One. He produced um, uh, the Who. Who's next? He produced Clapton Slowhand. He produced. Uh, you know, Linda Ronstadt, the Kinks, you know, all this stuff. So uh-huh. I was doing a game show mm-hmm. and um, my uh, my topic, my my expertise, my category of expertise was the album, The Who, The Who's Next, because that was that was uh, important to me as a kid. So at the end of this game show, they bring on a celebrity judge to see if I got the questions right. And the two guests were Glenn Johns, who produced the album, mm-hmm. and Ethan Russell, who took the cover picture and took the pictures for Let It Be. He, he shot the cover for Let It Be, the, all the Beatles stuff and all the John Lennon stuff. And I knew these guys because I'm, I'm, a, I'm a freak. So I'm sitting there. It's over Zoom. I'm sitting there. They popped on. And my first words were, holy shit, it's you. <laughs> yeah. And the, the, this guy went, oh. And then, and then the other, I went, holy shit, it's you too. So uh, <laughs> they were all laughing at me. And I got all the questions right. So um, they sent me his email. He goes, I'd love to be on your show. And nice. it was great. That is truly, you know, when you think about it, I have a particular level of like admiration for the guys who are producing music in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's, here's what I would say. When you watch a, a movie yeah. from the 60s, 70s, 
Uh, very few of those films hold up because a lot of them have like, unless it was like a very good plot line. Mm-hmm. So much of the filming technology was so primitive at that point. Yeah. Let's say that it like it looks hokey. The special effects suck. The yeah, transition like are, a soap opera or something. Yeah, it just doesn't. It doesn't quite hold. There's very few movies that really hold up from that long ago. Mm-hmm. Again, unless I unless it was like just a tremendous story. You know, like Wizard of Oz was filmed in what the 30s, yeah, which is insane. But like it holds up because of the story, mm-hmm. you know. But with music, what I find interesting about music is like you can listen to songs from the 60s, 70s, 80s, and it sounds pretty close. Not obviously the production now is much much better because it's a lot easier to get certain results out. Mm-hmm. But so much more of the recorded music, I think, from that era still holds up. Where you listen to it, you listen to a, a Zeppelin album, or you listen to an Eagles album or a Beatles. It doesn't sound dated. It doesn't leave you wanting for better production. You don't feel like you're missing anything when you listen to no. Hotel California. In talking, you know? in talking to Glenn, one of the things that, again, because this is just something that interests me, is that period of time was um, he wasn't into the rec- he was he was a great engineer because he wanted to capture the performance mm-hmm. and the sound. So you're listening to a performance, mm-hmm. um, and you're listening probably through a, a tube desk pre seventies. They were all tube. It's like a Marshall. Mm-hmm. You know, you get that tube sound out of a Marshall. You're not gonna get that out of solid state. Yeah, you're not. You know, mm-hmm. so. And they only had four tracks when they started. So you had to make decisions right there. You can't keep changing mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. Like, this is the way we're going to go. And the record contracts you had, you were you had to do two albums a year. It's every six months. Jesus. So what you're going to do, this is happening now. Bowie did Ziggy Stardust. And uh, Woody Woodmansey, the drummer, said, he didn't like to do any more than two takes. He goes, maybe three. Yeah. And they just learned the song. He would run it down and they, all right, let's do it. So it was a performance right there, and it was wow. that was it. Um, so I think that's what you're hearing, and also the, the it was a different time. It, it was a, a, a broader form of communication. So it, we were speaking to a bigger audience. So you're also conditioned to hearing that stuff because they've been playing for years. You know, the, the music has been playing, and then in the '80s, classic rock came in. So that's when the categories start. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. but it was so familiar to the people spending money. Why do you think the Who is in? We sell it out to like the CSI series. It's familiar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> can make money from yeah. it. Yeah. It's weird when you hear about. There's like Bowie. You said didn't like to do more than two or three takes. Mm-hmm. And Kurt Cobain from Nirvana was similar, supposedly. Where yeah. you know he didn't even want to double his vocals on certain tracks, and he was the like Beatles against- didn't want to do it, so they came up with ADT, which is automatic tracking, where you 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 cock the vocals a little bit so it sounds just thicker. so it sounds so it sounds delayed. Thicker. And John Lennon goes, "I'm not singing it again." So. <laughs> so I think it was I, it wasn't Jeff Emmerich it was one of the two guys that came up with ADT where you just double the vocal sometimes from the producer angle don't you wish you just could have kicked John Lennon in the face for saying that like dude come on no I would be You're like not ah, you know what if, if again, he only bro. had one song fuck it but yeah. he's, there's a lot of shit here I'm gonna yeah, he, might, he might know a thing or two <laughs> I know he knows a thing or two but it's just like you know you're sitting there with a producer who knows that aspect of it and he's like dude I'm telling you if you want this to sound good mm. this is my job is to make it sound good so how about you get your ass in there and sing it one more time. Trust me, it'll be good. It'll mm-hmm. sound good. Yeah. It's like sometimes I don't it'll know. It'll also be your last session. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unless you're putting out a number one record album, you know, which, well, which the, the producers did. At that time, and I was, because Glenn, when I was talking to him, is um, he, he started with the Rolling Stones. Jimmy Page lived down the block from me, went to school with him. Mm-hmm. So it was like they knew each other. You know, the first Zeppelin session, he's like, and he knew John Paul Jones, the bass player, because he was yeah. a session guy. Mm-hmm. 
and he said, Jimmy said, would you come in and produce this? And 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 Glenn said, you know, in my interview, he said, he goes, I had no idea what I was in for, but I, as soon as they hit the first note, it parted my hair down the middle. <laughs> just, just the drums alone, John Paul. And you know, it's that's a cool thing. It's all it parted my hair down the middle. Just, it was just at that time when he was creating all this stuff in the Stones and and uh, Clapton. And he said about Eric Clapton, he goes, when Eric plays. The music goes straight from his heart to his hands. Mm-hmm. It doesn't go through his head. Yeah, and you're like, you can see he's sitting in the room while that shit's happening. Well, that's that's the really the, more than anything. I mean, especially the way the technology is now with recording music, mm. it, it's hard for me to even imagine how difficult it must have been. But not difficult by their standards because that's what they were used to. Mm-hmm. But this idea of like, yeah, you're. You pretty much have to nail it. I mean, unless you you yeah. can find a place in the song where the guy can cut the tape and splice it with another tape. That's how they did it. It wasn't just it wasn't put a marker in, cut and paste. You had to physically cut it. If you listen to uh, Strawberry Fields Forever, mm-hmm. it's two ta- it's two different songs. Yeah, around a minute in, they had to cut it on an angle. That's how they faded in and out. You cut the tape on an angle. Jeez. And this is one fucking guy with a razor blade going, you got it? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> so there's an edit in there. Like, it's a lot of about, pressure, too, because there's no command Z on that. No. You yeah. can't, oh, you can't back it up. up. So that's what it all was. You know, it was, it was that kind of... That kind of urgency and one shot of it. That kind of urgency and also that kind of... I mean, it just... the the ded- Not the dedication, but like the... I guess when you're when you're a musician on that level and that's the standard of recording, yeah. three takes is probably enough because you and your band have it locked in. You have to have it locked in. Yeah, Zeppelin to get a One was session. done because Jimmy Jimmy Page finances Zeppelin One and uh, and he they were rehearsing as the New Yardbirds because he still had the name because he was in the last in uh, generate. Uh, incarnation of the Yardbirds. Mm-hmm. So he they played, they had gigs in like Sweden, so they had to go to Sweden and play under the name of the new Yardbirds. So they just rehearsed the album. When he went into the studio, boom. It's like the Who, Who's Next. Mm-hmm. That album is so, so much energy coming at you all at once and it's so tight because they were rehearsing it. It was part of another rock opera that that fell apart, but the songs were great, so they were mm-hmm. rehearsing it, so they knew it. You know, the Stones would go in for days and just, get, yeah. you know, is Keith high yet? All right, let's try it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Stones kind of they did have a, a more procured uh, come up. From I watched a documentary about them, and apparently they, I think they had six guys originally. Yeah, and the person who was managing them said, and it was actually very interesting. He said, we can't have more than five guys in the band because that's the maximum amount of people that like young teenagers yeah. and stuff like that will remember. So they, they got the keyboardist who I think at the time was like 28. Ian and, Stewart. Yeah. He, was, he was roommates with Glenn Johns. Yeah. And uh, didn't they kick him out or something like that? He really was. He was a great piano player. He really wasn't. I don't think they kicked him out as much as he goes, yeah, okay. You know, he didn't, it wasn't calling him. You know, and Brian Jones was in the band. Then Brian Jones was one of the founding members of it. How do you think that feels when you're you're the you're a guy that was in the Rolling Stones and you 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 left right before they wound up becoming one of the most legendary bands of all time? I think you feel like Pete Best, the first yeah. drummer in the Beatles. Yeah, but he he was asked. I think it was a mutual thing. I'm not quite sure, but I think it was a mutual thing. But he also played um, the keyboards on Zeppelin, rock and roll. I mean, how how is Pete Best not kicking himself in the ass every day? Because well, he didn't quit. They threw him out. So well, it's like he didn't really well, have a chance. Yeah, he, but then, you know, anytime you watch anything in regards to music, the, the band that you were in is constantly coming up. And you know what? Like, 
you know, I know it's cliche to say, but obviously Ringo Starr wasn't exactly the best drummer ever either. He was, he's, but he was the best drummer for them. Mm-hmm. Perhaps, yeah. yeah. But I, I'm sure maybe Pete Best is thinking like, dude, it's not like you guys dumped me, picked up John Bonham and became a great band. It's like you dumped me, picked up another, you know, like p- passable drummer. Yeah, I don't think he was passable. I think he was the drummer. It's like Charlie Watts. Charlie Watts is a great drummer. He's not flashy. What band is he from? He was just the original drummer in the Stones. Oh, okay. Charlie Watts, his time, he was just, he was a jazz drummer. He was just behind the beat and it mm-hmm. was perfect. Mm-hmm. It was perfect for what they did. And, and and I think Ringo was perfect for what he did. They had to force him to do a solo on uh, on the medley on Abbey Road in the back. He's like, I'm not, I don't like drum solos. Like, All right, it's done. It's over. Who it was telling me the other week that apparently Ringo didn't play a lot of the studio sessions? Was no, it Matt he, Brown? I don't know. He played. I, he played. I know he didn't. He's play. a known liar. He was supposed to be here for this. I can't yeah, trust that. I can't trust that guy. Yeah. <laughs> no. yeah, the guy that said he was going to be here also told me Ringo didn't play his own stuff. No, so. Ringo did. The ones, the one he wasn't on is the Ballad of John and Yoko. Paul is playing that, and I think back in the USSR. He's playing the drums on that. Paul played the drums on that, and Paul played the drums, I believe, on back in the USSR. Wow, Yoko Ono, the most iconic bitchy girlfriend of all time. I think. Yeah, but they were on their way out. I mean, yeah, it didn't help. She's sitting on the amp. Yeah, yeah, John. Yeah, I'm not gonna lie. I, I, I'm sorry. I recommended punching John Lennon in the face earlier on the podcast, but he kind of had look that air of like I'm only doing it once, bro. It's kind of like it's hard. Let me ask you this question: When you when you came up, you're coming up in New York, right? Mm-hmm. You obviously are very passionate about music. Mm-hmm. I can tell by talking to you. Why? And you played in a band. Was it when you're playing in this band? Was music a pursuit of yours that you realized like I don't have what it takes, or was comedy just a bigger passion of yours? I was started out. I wanted to be. I started learning the guitar, and I wanted to be a musician. But I realized very quickly, I don't have the, I don't have the. You know, I had my guitar with me everywhere until I got to college. Cool. Everywhere. I mean, I just took it with me everywhere, mm-hmm. and I was okay. You know, I wasn't. I wasn't progressing enough to hold my interest, and I knew what it took to get there, and I couldn't make this, I couldn't make the, the uh, I, I, I wasn't advancing quick enough to keep me going. I couldn't make the sound in my head come out through my hands. Yes. So when I started doing comedy, I went, oh, I can do this, and I can do this at a level that's going to keep my interest and keep me wanting to do more. Does that make any sense? Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. First time I was on stage, I got an applause break, and it just, boom. It parted my hair down the middle. <laughs> what happened was I got that feeling. You know when you hit a golf ball, right? You get that ping? Yeah. That's what happened. Yeah. And I, I was a kid, and I went, I don't know where this feeling is going to lead me. And that was the I'm first time you got it. on stage, you said? One of the early times I got on stage, I would haunt the open mics on Long Island, and I got an applause break on a joke I wrote fairly early on. I'd say within the first... 10 sets I did. I don't know when it came out, but I remember. Do you remember the joke? I love everyone's like very early jokes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do I remember the joke? I'm, I, what was the joke? Uh, I think it was, I was riffing with the audience to be honest with you, but mm-hmm. I remember going back and listening to the applause break because it sounded like a comedy album. Yeah. You know? And it sounded like, I'm like, holy shit, I did this. Yeah, yeah. Because a lot of my, I, I do a lot of improv in my act because when I started, I didn't have the time mm-hmm. but i got i got offered a gig fairly early on you know to, to go to this because the bars were cheap so you could go and do an opening act he goes i need you to go and i need you to do 20 minutes i go yeah okay i didn't have 20 minutes <laughs> i'd have i had i had a couple of opening jokes for about two minutes and then so i had to play with the audience because i didn't have it 
Yeah. So you got to get good quick. And it's a bar, so they're not sitting down and listening to you. You're fighting for their attention. Yeah, yeah They don't even know a show's coming. Yeah. You're <laughs> that, in the way. Yeah. yeah. No, the advertisement for the show is like Tuesday comedy, Thursday jello shots. You know, yeah. it's yeah. not like this is the reason they're coming here. Yeah, and more people are coming for the jello shots yeah. on Thursday. <laughs> yeah. That so, it, but that's why comedy took over for music, because I was like, I'm better at this, and I'm having more fun doing this and practicing this, I'm getting more feedback because you can only practice in front of an audience. Mm -hmm. So I was you get the get, instant gratification. I was getting the gratification and the feedback, yeah. and I was advancing quicker than I was sitting in my room doing scales. Were you making a living in comedy pretty much? I mean, I'm assuming obviously in college. You said you started pretty much right after college. Right after college. I made a living for... And I started making a living about a year after college because what I was doing was I was I always worked for my dad and you know he did kitchens and bathrooms and I don't oh, have cool. the mechanical ability so I was running tools back and forth and yeah. cleaning up jobs and stuff. Good. But then when I got out of college, the last straight job I had, I was a dishwasher at a savings bank. Stay with me. At a bank. Yeah, <laughs> the Long Island Savings Bank. Okay. Corporate offices on Long Island. And there was corporate offices, so they had a dining room for all the executives. These are bank executives. They're all guys with dietary needs, so they put a kitchen up there in a dining room. They had a chef. They had a waiter. They had a sous chef and a dishwasher, and it was a bank gig, and they were just there for lunch. So they had a whole kitchen, and it was a four-man crew, so I was there at 9 in the morning, and I left at 3 in the afternoon. And it was a, I was washing dishes. I could show up hungover. A lot of times yeah. on Wednesdays, I didn't sleep because yeah. I, I was in an improv troupe in Queens we would do the show, and I would go out with the guys from the show afterwards. And I was a kid. I was 20 years old. Mm -hmm. I was doing stand-up. Everyone from the show would go to this other bar, and we would go to the other bar, and you would review the show. And you were By the time I came home from Queens, you'd sleep a couple hours, you'd get up, and you'd the next day. But I haunted the clubs at night. So that was the last straight job I had. And then I remember what happened was I got it my first weekend. was at a club called Wise Guys in Syracuse, and I was mm -hmm. emceeing the show. And I had to take, I, I got my first weekend. So it was, it was Thursday, Friday, Saturday. I remember Martin Lawrence was the headline. Ooh. So I had to drive up. I think so Martin's I told from him, Baltimore, right? I don't know. I think so. Is he? Martin Lawrence? Yes. Huh. So I drove up. I told, I told him, I said, I need, I need to take, uh, uh, I'm leaving Wednesday after my show. I need, I need Thursday and Friday off. They said, you can't have Thursday and Friday off. I said, I got my gig. I, I got to go. It's my first big week in comedy. He goes, you can't have it off. I said, okay, I quit. They're like, Uh -huh. you, you can't quit. I go, look, I'm leaving. <laughs> the only question is, am I coming back? Nobody quits the dishwashing yeah. job at the bank. Yeah. yeah, because I was the only one that was responsible because the people weren't showing up. But I was like, this is a job. I'm showing up for this. Yeah. So I told him, I was like, I'm leaving. The only question is, am I coming back? Uh, oh, okay. I left. I said, I've enjoyed my time with you. I'm sure you'll send me my last check. I got to go. I left. They called that afternoon. All right, come in Monday, but this is the last time. Yeah, fine. <laughs> Next time I did the same thing because I didn't care. It was well, a dishwashing gig. Yeah, and it's not like, I mean, it probably, it depends, but it's not like people are clamming over themselves to get that job, they, you know? Well, here's the thing is the people they had before me were... I, whoever whoever seeks out a dishwasher, no one's seeking out a dishwasher. Yeah. That's where they end up. Yeah, you mm -hmm. definitely. So they wouldn't one. show up, and then the the people that was fired me was the was the chef and the sous chef. Those were the ones running the kitchen. They were in charge of staffing it, and they, they really didn't want to fire me because then they had to do the job. Yeah, they yeah. had to wash their own dishes. Yeah, they don't. The, the bank didn't want to hear this isn't running because you can't keep anybody. You're responsible for it. So I knew they didn't want to let me go. Wow. Well, a I've never heard of a. A dishwasher at a bank. That's, I never that's did fascinating yeah. to me. 
Makes me wonder if M&T Bank has a dishwasher. <laughs> you look if, they have, job. If, yeah, <laughs> if they have rich dishes, old dudes what? with dietary needs, they got it. Trust me. <laughs> and you're paying for it. That must be one of those things, like those old school things, like how uh, flying on a plane used to be a whole different thing. Like the the stewardesses and everything was much classy back Air then. Movie theaters wearing a mm. suit. Maybe working them. at a bank was much more glamorous back then. No, it wasn't. I was show. a dishwasher. Well, well, you were part <laughs> well, of the, you. You were part <laughs> the of the bank team. People. <laughs> yeah, the guy that fired you was probably pretty glamorous. The guy that needed the kitchen. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's uh That's. I mean, so you're at that point. You're working at the dish as a dishwasher. You're how mm. old? Twenty four, twenty five. At say? that point, yeah, I'd say 20, 23 maybe. And you said this was like the late eighties. Uh, I started July thirteenth, nineteen eighty eight. So let's say two years in. So. Was that still like during like? I don't know, people say there was like a comedy boom back then. Where yeah, there it was. was. Like, that's why I got. That's why I could work. Because yeah, so you could the like bars knew that you could work at a bar. They could have a comedy night, and the television producers knew that everyone had a had a comedy. Mm-hmm. MTV, VH1, A and E had one. Um, all these people. Yeah, like one. Night at the Improv. Fox had, I did like, Fox, yeah, Evening at the Improv, I did, and Fox, um, Comic Strip Live, and they, you know, they used to give you denim jackets, and I had a bunch of denim jackets. With it was like required? Shows. Nah, That's they would sick. give it to you, they'd give you a thank you for doing our show. Those are things. just like all over, what is it, like Hollywood? What's yeah. Planet Hollywood? Planet Hollywood, yeah. yeah. There's like a couple of like those, those floating around there. Yeah. I remember, I remember, oh, what, I thought it was like required to, like you walk into a nice no, restaurant, they, they make you wear they a, you a, a jacket. Gift. They gave you that. <laughs> Sorry, you're not I allowed without bun- a denim jacket. I got a whole box, I got... I got a hoodie from Fallon. It says Fallon. You don't wear them. They're just mm-hmm. in a box. That's good. Yeah. A hoodie that says Fallon. I guess I would wear that probably. I suppose. I, I don't know. I yeah. yeah. Well, so. One second. One second. One second. You got to put the other foot up. Yeah. I was uh, I was perusing your IMDb, mm. and uh, I saw you're on an episode of Criminal Minds. Yeah. That's uh, That was one of the shows me and my girlfriend started watching during the pandemic. Mm. And it's like... It's such a good show. Like, did you watch it before being on it? Or like- I, I interviewed um, Joe Montaigne, and they showed me an episode. Like, I would see it was on, but I wouldn't <laughs> seek it out. That show was a pain in the ass, I'll tell you what. Really? You're talking about Joe Montaigne, the, Joe Montana, the football not, no, player? No, Montaigne, the actor, not, not the mm-hmm. San Francisco quarterback. And he okay. was on it. So, um, But that show was So I get the gig, right? And I, gotta, I, I play the father of a, an abducted child. And you're a guest star, right? Oh, at least so. you weren't like the villain. No, I wasn't a bad guy. Because <laughs> the bad guys on that show are bad. Yeah, they're yeah. bad. They're really bad. So when you're a guest star on a show, you're only going to get two takes. And if it's early in the morning, they're going to shoot your coverage first because the stars aren't up yet. So they're just going to, you know, that's just what it is. So the first scene was I break down in the FBI office because my daughter's been abducted. So I got to cry. Eight o'clock in the morning. Jeez. I had to fucking cry. Do they want real tears? Yeah. You're an really? actor. Yeah. So can I you pull a, that? Yeah. Really? It's a, it, it hurts. It, here's the thing is I can cry. It hurts it, emotionally or it hurts physically? It, it hurts emotionally, but not when I cry. It hurts coming back. Because mm. I got to uh. go, in order to get there, I got to go through the defenses we all have as comics, as the comic relief. Every, every comic has their spidey sense, if there's tension in the room, to, to break the tension. It's just the way we're wired. That's mm-hmm. how you read a room. You know, so when things are uncomfortable, my instinct's not to sit in the uncomfortable, it's to diffuse it. So I got to go through the uncomfortable to get to the emotion, to make the tears come out. And I've learned how to do that, but come putting myself back together again. Emotionally, it's like Chaz, Chaz Palm and Terry saying, now you can't leave. So did you, so did you study acting in college? What was your, no. what did you study in college? 
finance. I can't balance my fucking Well, that's why you got the bank job. (laughs) (laughs) You just got... I went to Marist College in Poughkeepsie, right? And that's Uh when I was in a band. The first year we were in a band. And so I didn't... I, you know, the first year I was in a band, I had a great time. We played, we played what, 12 songs? And I think we played Born to be Wild twice. We weren't good. There you go. But we're all we had. So I had a great time my first year. You know, you you drink too much, you get fat. And then the next year you come back, you look around, you're like, all right, he's going to OD. That guy owes me money. Yeah. This kid's just a mess. This band ain't going anywhere. Yeah. So I would go to school Monday through Thursday, and then I would get in my car drive home to Long Island, and I would work the weekends at a, at a fence company. I was driving a forklift and putting up sheds and digging holes, but I had cool. money in my pocket. So I looked at college. I'm like, all right, I got to get through this. I can't not do, finish this, but yeah. this, ain't, this ain't helping me. So I got through it, and then when I got out of college, I, I, uh, I went on stage because I wanted to do that. Well, I, I just find it interesting because you always, that's like a classic actor thing, wow. you know, the, the being able to cry on command. Like when you watch those like, movies where they're like i'm an actor i can Mm. cry on command it's like the thing that people can do and i've never personally been able to do it Mm. but i do wonder like is that something that someone had to teach you like focus what what is the method there not to for me i'm just curious it depends there's different methods people have recall emotional recall you go back to a sad part of your life you can do that mine starts with uh i learned from a a guy named stephen book stephen book acting method and it's you, your body just starts, your brain doesn't know what's true and what's not. So there's a breath pattern to sadness. There's a, if you, if you hear when you cry, it's always a staccato in here like. <laughs> yeah. So you start the machine. Ah. And then once you it's start like the Pavlovian, machine. almost like Pavlovian where it's yeah. like. For me, it's like, it's like a lot of that stuff. That's just the way I can do it. You know, mm-hmm. you start the machine and then once you're in there, you can, you feel the tears coming up. You learn how to not, you learn how to go with the emotion. You have to teach yourself that, to get past your instincts, for lack of a better word. To get so it turns out being the father of the victim is probably a much harder role than being the bad guy. Because bad guys don't really cry ever, you know? Well, bad, yeah, I can be a dick guys, on command. Well, thing, bad guys don't know they're bad guys. They think what they're doing is right and they justify it in their minds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's that's a tough one. I, adu- I abducted this kid because uh, I got a yeah. reason. I got a good reason. Don't ask me about it. But. I got a reason. <laughs> Just take my word for it. Yeah. Listen, it helps. <laughs> <laughs> Makes it easy. I had a cry in, I had a cry in law and order, too. Really? Now you you did play the bad guy in Law and Order. Yeah, you said because yeah. every that's like the classic because Law and Order the good guys are always the same. Yeah, the rotating cast is always the bad guy. Yeah, you know, and I was the bad guy. So how much of it? Because Law and Order was it SVU where you were rapist? No, it was the mothership. I was a pedophile. I was. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I wasn't a rapist. Hey, dude. <laughs> no, basically it was. I was the Michael Jackson character when he got. Basically, I was a guy on Saturday Night Live. I was a famous comedian oh, that had a thing with kids. That they so you played yourself. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I played there's myself only, uh, a pedophile. There's only, there's only. We're just gonna cut real quick while I kick you in the ball. <laughs> um, yeah, no. So I, I had to do that. So the story behind that is, uh, I get the gig, and. There's two stories. One, I had to cry again. Eight o'clock in the morning. I got to cry. If I'm you wa- if you fuck up like a, a teary scene, mm-hmm. do, you, do they have to be like, all right, cut. We got to wait like 20 minutes for his cheeks to unflush or like. Yeah. I feel like it's hard me, to reset. I'd like another porn set. The director's really cool. And, you mm-hmm. know, and, and he's seen you, unless it's a straight offer, which means they call you up. Do you want to play this part? Which I've had those. I was mm-hmm. with the good wife. I had that. You've nine times out of ten, you've been in the room with the director, and he's seen what you can do, and that's what you have to do in front of camera. You know? Yeah. So it's you know he knows you can do it, or he knows your work, and 
So, I mean, if you fuck up, you, you ask for another take. Right? Yeah, yeah. If you're a guest star, you're only getting two takes. They got to make their day. Yeah. So it's eight o'clock in the morning. I got to cry again. Again, eight o'clock in the morning. I'm at Chelsea Piers. Yeah. And uh, we do the rehearsal. And after you do rehearsal, so they'll announce stage manager. All right, crew has the set, which means the actors go away and they set up the lights and do all those shit. So it was me and I was smoking then. So it was me and Jesse Martin. Nice. Who was on the show. I was up on the, on the roof having a cigarette with him. And it was great. He gave me a cigarette. And he goes, I don't envy you, man, having to do acting shit early in the morning. <laughs> I go, thanks, Jesse. You're not helping. Because I'm nervous. It's a crying scene. Right? Yeah. It's my first crying scene. And, and he's like, yeah, I just stand there with the pad and write shit down. <laughs> so, yeah, I had to do that. And then, so the show airs, right? And this is when uh, Law & Order was on NBC. It was on 10 o'clock. It was before, you know, it was, it was a, a, a thing. It was a dun-dun. So my mother, this is my first dramatic role. So my mother invites everybody in the neighborhood. Oh, God. She, yeah, everybody in the neighborhood's coming <laughs> over. She made a lasagna. She's yeah. wearing a corsage. Everyone's in the basement. Yeah. Basement they just know that you're on Law & Order. Yeah, you're on Law & Order. <laughs> my mother's the queen of Marjan. Her son, the actor, is on Law & Order. They're on TV tables eating, and they, they go, boom, boom, guest star, Adam Ferrara. There's his uh, name. They spelled it right. You know, the whole thing. Comes on, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a pedophile. <laughs> There's nothing. There's dead silence. And I'm in L.A. now. I've moved to L.A. already. Yeah. My well, phone the Catholic rings. Church had to shuttle you out there. Yeah. <laughs> my phone rings, and it's my mother. And she's like, what the hell is wrong with you? I invited the whole neighborhood on, and you're playing a baby toucher. What do you do? I was so embarrassed. Nobody ate the lasagna. I, cu I couldn't even bring out the garbage. I told your father to drag the pails out. I don't want people to see me. <laughs> well, if you had it your way, I mean, like, when you're on Law & Order, I mean, what's the best bad guy you can be? I guess maybe, I mean, she knew you were going to be a bad guy. What, oh, I what? didn't tell her. I just said I was on Law and Order. Well, what did she yeah. think? You're gonna be a superhero? Like I said, it's anytime. my mother. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? My mother. I'm on a show now that's streaming on CBS, this CBS streaming service. Mm -hmm. It's easier for me to hire the cast and go out and act it out in her condo than tell her how to get the streaming service. <laughs> she can't figure that out. <laughs> what uh, what show is this that you're it's on? Called right Why now? Women Kill. Why Women Kill. And I'm assuming there's that a true crime podcast. No, it's, a, it's the guy, Mark Cherry, who did um, Desperate Housewives. Okay. And uh, it takes place at this house in three different decades. Uh, I was in the first season, uh, and it was the 60s, the 80s, and current day. So I was in the 60s, which is really cool. Good. They, I got Good. to, they, mm -hmm. they dress you up in the 60s. It was nice. really, really cool. Nice. And uh, so I did that, and that was on this CBS streaming. And um, who was on the show? Lucy Liu was on the show, uh, Jennifer Goodwin. Oh, cool. Yeah, Alicia Coppola, she played my wife in the show. So, And, you know, it was on the streaming service. My mother can't get the stream. Yeah. Send me a tape, Ma. <laughs> <laughs> it was the first time I did Letterman. What time is it on? I said, 11.30. It's too late. Can you do it at 5? Ma, I can't do it at 5. <laughs> so how was... Uh, how the first time I did Letterman, I, my parents come in, and I knew Eddie Brill, who was uh, booking the comedy. Uh, mm -hmm. So Eddie got me in early, got my parents in early. Walked out on the stage, and they're sitting. It's the Ed Sullivan Theater, boys. The Beatles played there. I do the set. Uh, I, no, I, 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 the first time I got bumped, right? So Lauren Bacall was on, I don't know, and she went long. And uh, Classic I get Lauren McCall. Yeah, so David Letterman goes, Adam Ferrara, we can't find him. He jumped in a cab. We don't know where he is. We're going to have him back as soon as we get him. Funny, yeah. good, done. Yeah. And I get paid again, right? So I get paid twice. I don't care. That's good. My mother doesn't understand it. Eddie brings him backstage. I'm in the green the dressing room. And uh, 
I hear my mother walking down the hall. Will someone tell me what the hell just happened? She's talking loud. And my father's there. He goes, we waiting for you. Where the hell are you? Right? And he's, he's like, I said, Pop, they bumped me. They ran out of time. He's like, well, we're here. We're not coming back. Let's do this. We'll stay. I go, Ma, it's not your time. It's the time on the show. So they came. So my father's, I said, Lauren Bacall went long. And my father went, I never liked her. I never liked her in black and white. I don't like her in color. And I certainly don't like her now. <laughs> That's got to be an amazing experience. So when you when you went on Letterman, do they bring you on for the little interview before or after? No, you can't. It's it's a different vibe. I mean, Letterman was you don't see him, you don't talk to him. At least Carson would give you like the fucking, you know what I mean? Like the okay sign a little bit. But Letterman, that's got to be weird just to... Well, he shook your hand. You know, but it, no, it was like you don't see him before. Um, Jake, like I said, they send the Jay bar around. You can have a drink and then Jay knocks on your room. And Corden came, comes to your room. Fallon comes to your room. But the Letterman, you know, he, he didn't. Wow. Have you done Conan? I've never done Conan, no. Mm. Now, is uh, doing the late night gig right now still as big of it as it was? I'm assuming... It's, it doesn't move the needle. I mean, I... Yeah. You know, it doesn't move the needle as much as um, like a social media. Like I said, the landscape has changed. The delivery mm -hmm. system has changed. Where people mm -hmm. go for things has changed. So it's, uh, you know, you just, you got to keep up, you know? Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's, and, and it's nice to do like I never really I wanted to do them as a comic just to have those pelts on my wall and I was real fortunate because I could do I did the Tonight Show and Letterman usually you only got to do one but I got to do both so yeah. I was pretty proud of that and um, and then you know Fallon and, and, and all the other ones you do uh, yeah. but I, it doesn't lend itself well to my stand up because you the first thing you got to do is you got to cut all your tags mm -hmm. because yeah. they just want the joke and because when people laugh at a joke on late night they're going to clap Mm -hmm. So the tags don't matter unless it leads to the next joke. Yeah. So once I figured out the puzzle, how to do it, um, to do it, I was like, it's good, but I'd rather do just panel. So now I'm fortunate. I just, I just do panel. Now. Do they tell the audience to laugh? No. Can you, can you bomb a late night set? Is that a sure thing? You can really? Sure. My little, there's two things. There's a bunch of stuff I learned for doing late night set. You got to get a laugh in the first ten seconds, whatever okay. that is. Yeah. Um, and you put your your best joke second to last. Because Interesting. the last joke, the band's going to kick in, so why waste an applause break? Yeah. So if you yeah. know you're going to get an applause break on the second to last joke, that's, the, that's where you build from. So you build towards that joke, try and keep it all, on, keep it all flowing to that joke, uh, and then the last tag you get, you get for free because the band kicks in and they're mm -hmm. all going to clap. Um, and what I do to settle my nerves, and I learned this my second or third time out, is you're backstage, there's a curtain. And you're going to come out with all the, the energy, and then usually when you get your first laugh, it calms you down. Yes. Right? As a comic, you know, mm -hmm. it calms you down. Yeah. So what I do is usually in commercials, the band is playing. I poke my head out of the of the uh, the curtain, and when they see me, they start clapping. Yeah. And I wave to them. I said, all right, all right, I just want to say hello. I'm coming out. I'm going to do the show for you guys, all right? Don't fuck it up. <laughs> I'm, I did my job. You do yours. And they all start laughing. So I've already got the laugh. Yeah. So I'm yeah. entering I'm entering in where I'm calmer. Mm -hmm. And I've already, and I said fuck. And they're like, ooh. So they feel like, oh, yeah. and they feel like they're this in guy, on something. Yeah. yeah. They're on and, your side already. Yeah. They're already <laughs> on your side. So in the, we talked about the landscape, how, it, how it's changed. Um, yeah. How much importance do you put on a social media presence these days? Huge. That's, Huge. that's it. That's the game. Baby. I see you're doing clips on Instagram from your podcast. I'm hustling as 
fast as I can. I'm do, I'm doing podcast at a crime scene right here. Yeah, that's right? true. You must really be <laughs> hustling if you're on Minds. I'm plugging my new podcast. special on YouTube. Eight hundred pound gorilla records. Adam Ferrara. It's scary in here. Give a brother a thumbs up. Have you looked into it's not uh, the name of the album? He's just talking about the studio. Yeah, it's scary. In <laughs> here. Scary in here. <laughs> yeah. Please get me out. Um, have you looked into TikTok or anything like that? Yeah, I got. Um, it was funny. Record company texted me this morning. Someone took my joke and uh, one of my jokes, and they they did their words to it. That's good though. That's a called oh, a duet. Like I believe. A yeah, it's a duet. They did a duet thing yeah, with yeah. me that I that I'm I'm just learning about now. And I was very flattered because they you know they were it was a it was a young married couple and it was a, one of my marriage jokes and they were sitting there doing it back and forth. That's nice when you see that stuff. This you know what I'll, this so last night boys this lady comes to my show and one of my specials on Comedy Central was a joke I did years ago. Uh, and she came and she did this. This was amazing to me. She took the joke and she got uh, pillows embroidered with the joke. Like the punchline of the joke? The whole joke. I'm going to show The whole it joke. Yeah, nice. here. This is it. This like is what she did. I said, you know, uh, when you're married, you know, you, you're going to you, you're gonna go through disagreements. You're in this together. All right? Uh -huh. I'm married for my wife. We're in this together. So, you know... You, you, a lot of guys think their wives are smarter than them. How mm -hmm. smart could she be? She picked you, okay? Yeah, yeah. So you're in it together. <laughs> yeah. So the joke was, uh, fuck when you can, fight when you have to, and ride it out. <laughs> Dude, I, I tell you what, that's look like, at those, pick, look that's at those pillows. That's the original live, laugh, love. <laughs> <laughs> she has three pillows. Fuck when you can, fight when you have to, and ride it out. Hell yeah. I tell you what, fuck when you can might be one of the most uh, poignant uh, relationship advice things I've ever heard. I, it's very, it's very true. It's very true. After a certain point, by the way, just out of curiosity, what episode? Because I, I kind of want to watch this. People listening might want to watch it. What episode of Law and Order were you on? Do you remember the number? Do you remember what the title was? No, I, it's probably on IMDb. No, I I yeah, true. I played a guy named Monty Bender. That was the guy's character name. But that's I a pedophile name, yeah, so Monty but, Bender. Yeah. <laughs> that's the guy. <laughs> yeah. So how is um. Uh, you know, you did a show last night at mm -hmm. Magoobies, correct? You got two more tonight. Two more tonight. How are those going? They're great. They're great because people want to come out. They're great. I'm grateful people come to see me. You know, mm -hmm. there's like, and, and when you hear how you've, like this lady with the pillows, I had no idea. I've affected this woman's life. She has that stuff in her home. That's got to yeah. be really That's rewarding. That's just, if I yeah. could, and then what, the best thing is when you see people, I really needed this. And they're looking in your eyes and go, thank you? Please. Well, this shit doesn't come... My assessment, you're a comic. Mm -hmm. I find the best stuff doesn't come from me. It comes through me. Yeah. yeah. So you're a conduit. Yeah. If it comes through me and touches other people, when it comes back to me, I get a great deal of pleasure by that. Even like Top Gear. Like Top Gear was a great show. And one of the things I'm very proud of and pleased with was uh, we would get uh, emails and texts from people that uh, I remember one, we, had, we printed it out and put it in the production office. There was a, uh, a, he goes, I'm a single mother, and this is the only time me and my 12-year-old son sit down together and laugh. Wow. And then she said, I hope my boy gets to make friends like you guys mm -hmm. and have the friendship that That's you really guys nice. have on camera. And like, how the, how the fuck do you not cry? Yeah. I'm sitting there going, oh, I got a vagina. <laughs> I'm crying. <laughs> that poor kid. I hope he does too, lady. You know, yeah. it's like. Yeah. So when you can affect people like that, I mean, I used to. When the show was on the air, you would get emails, you know, what's how old is the age? And a lot of the kids weren't old enough to come in. So I would go out on Saturdays into the parking lot 
And the kids would show up, and I would sign minivans and take pictures with them. And wow, you see their faces, and you see the mothers and fathers whispering, "Thank you." You know, they just <laughs> make these people happy. Was there a moment when you realized, like, or I guess, was there a particular gig or a particular role you played when things just kind of changed in terms of like, wow? I'm becoming a, a recognizable figure versus like, you know, obviously you said you were making a living mm-hmm. after, you know, the dishwashing job and things like that, but making a living doing comedy versus being someone that people are going out of their way to come out and see. You can go to different parts of the country and people know yeah, you. Yeah, there was a couple of... Um, Did that happen after the TV thing, do you think? Yeah, or? it would happen. Uh, yeah. What, what would... like led to the development deal, I guess? Again, it was just they were looking for people. That's where the focus was looking for people. It's like people mm-hmm. looking for influences now. Yeah, yeah. They realized that comics, they could build a show around, you know? So they were looking. So that's where the attention was. Mm-hmm. So for me to get the deal, someone just saw me on MTV, but it wasn't like a public thing. Yeah. I think the first public thing was when I did a, I did a signing um, at uh, an auto museum. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just show up to see the kids at the top here. And there was lines. And I was like, what happened? I, I I really thought I really thought there was there was an accident and people were looking. Happy that, Honda days. Yeah, that that was weird. <laughs> and then when I did um, Rescue Me, we did the Rescue Me comedy tour, um, and we were they would take us through the the bowels of the casinos, uh, that walk us through the back and like stuff. Good and, and we had That's a tour cool. bus, and there was people outside with the tour bus, and that was really cool. And I played Radio wow. City. I played I played Carnegie Hall. I mean that that wow. stuff was really cool. So, but it comes in waves. You know, you get. You pop up and then you pop that. It's not like, yeah. you know, that's him, that's him. We're soldiers, boys. This is what we do. We get to live as artists. We fucking yeah, exactly. win. Did it mess with you psychologically? Like now that you're saying it comes in waves when you, obviously the 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 rush of like almost disbelief when you're used to just being a guy on the road or whatever, yeah. doing whatever, and then you show up to a gig and there's like lines of people there to see you. That's got to be like, well, it's almost like hard to believe that this is for me. Yeah. But then I imagine after a certain point that becomes your standard, and then when it's not like that anymore, like you kind of there's a lull. Yeah. Do you? Is it like even harder? Like a. It's harder when you're younger because emotionally, what's harder when you? For me, I'm I'm not speaking generally. Mm -hmm. If you don't know who you are, and when you're younger, I was always going out to get. As you get older, you realize there's no fucking answers out there. Yeah. I remember when I moved. From LA, from New York to LA, and I had the deal, and I had the attention and stuff. And I remember, I, I remember writing in, in in my journal, I'm like, I can't hear the applause anymore. Yeah, which means for me, what that meant for me was this isn't making me happy. The drug mm-hmm. ain't working. Mm-hmm. The drug ain't working, and I that was really early on. Um, so I had to assess what I was doing and what I wanted to do and what what I wanted to put out and disconnect from the outcome, which yeah. is hard to do because your identity is connected to the outcome. Yeah. Your identity is connected to the feedback you get because you don't know any better. When, mm-hmm. when that's taken away, two things can happen. You're either going to adjust to it or you're going to keep chasing it. If you keep chasing it, you end up at the end of a fucking needle somewhere. And I don't want that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can even see that on a small scale, even with, you know, social media, you, you make a post and it doesn't, it like, you get like no likes on it or something like that. Yeah. And it's like a weird type of thing where it's like all of a sudden that that translates into like how you value yourself for yeah. the day. You're like, oh, I guess I'm a piece of shit. Today. I'm a piece of shit. Yeah. Nobody, nobody liked that last post, huh? Yeah. You know, and suddenly that is like, you know, 
it part of my identity or something like that. And I imagine, yeah, that that's got to be the toughest thing. I, I like that idea of you do have to know who you are because as long as you are judging yourself based off of the feedback you're getting from other people, it's a constant roller coaster of now they like me, now they don't, now I'm hot, now I'm not. And it's like if you if you don't derive your self-worth from what you're doing and the and the happiness you got out of doing it, then yeah, you're a constant you're a constant slave to to how other people perceive yeah. you. And that's yeah. That's that is how people end up at the end of a needle because you can't you're not going to be that guy forever. You know, no. there's a point when you're not you know, supposed to be. You're, you're supposed not. to look. I think it was Muhammad Ali. I don't know. Uh, I hope so. Yeah, but Muhammad Ali. Uh, I, I I heard the quote as as attributed to uh, Muhammad Ali. He said, "If you see the world at forty the same way you did at twenty, you wasted twenty years." Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, well, I will say right off the bat that uh, most good quotes are either by Muhammad Ali, mm. Ben Franklin, or unknown, or Mark Twain. He's another Mark big Twain. quote guy. So there's a one in four chance that uh, he's I like said Marcus that. Aurelius. Marcus the Aurelius, philosopher the, king. the philosopher king, one of my the last favorite great ones, stoic. The effects of anger are far more destructive than the incident that inspired it in us. Wow. Yeah. Because I, I think that sounds I get, in Latin. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> <laughs> Stop yelling, Mark! Oh. Yeah, it's usually when you're angry, you'll say something you regret. It's, yeah. And the thing, that, the thing that made you angry isn't coming into play. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's the, the after effect of what you did. Well, that's, that's kind of a, that, that sentiment of, of being the same person from when you're 20 to when you're 40 kind of gets reflected a lot in, I imagine, what a lot of uh, musicians go through. Uh, yeah. You're playing music and people... They, you know, when you're young and you're in your 20s and, and 30s and stuff like that, and you're writing music about the the struggles or the life experience of somebody in their early, in their 20s and 30s, mm -hmm. you know, and then that's how people know you. That's what people listen to you for. And that's what people relate to. And then you get to your 40s and 50s and it's like, well, now I'm writing music based off of the experience I'm having as a 40 year old man or a 50 mm -hmm. year old man. And people are like, oh, like, I don't really you know resonate with this type of music it's like well i can't if i were to keep writing music about the, you know the way i did when i was 20 or 30 then i'm not i'm not truly being honest you know yeah and you're not evolving and you're not doing mm -hmm. your job as an artist you're i don't know what what type of art you can be i'm not a, i'm not a social critic mm -hmm. i'm a i'm a student of the human condition mm -hmm. so whatever's affecting my life i'm going to write about yeah and you know i'm going to make it try and make it funny uh but i get the greatest what brings me pleasure is the experiential laugh when mm -hmm. I can articulate a feeling someone has had. Yes. That's, that's the biggest, and music does that, when you can articulate mm -hmm. a feeling that you don't know what it is, but you're like, that's what it is. And that, that, that's an illumination that you can give to somebody else, and it's, uh, it's very gratifying and powerful for them. So it's a two-way kind of street. Well, it's also unique comedy versus music, another big distinction, which we talked about on the podcast before. But the difference between when you're a comedian, when you're a musician... And you're, you're, let's say you're Billy Joel. We were listening to Billy Joel before yeah. the show. Actually, we were listening to the Kinks before the show. But let's say you're the Kinks. Mm -hmm. You show up and people remember you for the music that they were listening to and the music that you were making during that time in their life. And when they go to see you, mm -hmm. that's what they want to hear. Yeah. Versus as a comedian, you're going up there and people really, they don't want to hear you do the same jokes you did 20 years ago. They want to hear... Adam Ferrara. Yeah, you and got new stuff. It, yeah, mm -hmm. so like as a comedian, it's almost the ex expectation to evolve and be current and be contemporary with the audience and relate to them, hey, yeah, this joke was funny in 93 and maybe it still is funny, but now it's 2021 and I'm going to talk about stuff going on right now because mm -hmm. that's how you really tap into what you're calling the experiential 
you know, the experiential left. So it is kind of, in that way, comedy is kind of more freeing because people go to band concerts all the time and they're like, yeah, he barely even played the hits, man. He's playing all stuff off his new album. People get actually mad about the fact yeah. that the guy they I went to go, go see... I want to go for an experience that I'm expecting. It's yeah. an expectation mm -hmm. of... And they want to leave feeling good. You know, mm -hmm. they want to leave... It, 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 the difference is you, 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 it's a communal thing where you want to invoke a memory. See, music is different because it's connected to the soundtrack of people's lives and it brings back a memory Yes, when we first heard this song. Mm -hmm. um, comedy is a shared experience that if you know the joke, you're, you're not going to laugh. Mm -hmm. there's, there's no surprise to it. There's no, you're not in the state of becoming with the audience. Yeah. That's, where I, that's why I like to improv a lot because me and the audience, we're making this together and it can never happen again. Yeah. And there's an emotional connection to that. So it's not really a big element of surprise in music. You don't get like a you're no. like whoa. Unless yeah. like the encore, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> That's about it. There's no punchline. If you heard the song again, there's no punchline. Yeah. I'm not going for a punchline. I'm going uh -huh. I'm going for you to invoke a memory where I felt good about this music and I want to see it live and I want to see you do it. That makes sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's an interesting take. I, I did want to say, unfortunately, speaking of music, I do have to jet down to Fell's point for a gig of mine this evening, but I did want to, before we go, you, you know, you got the podcast, 30 minutes, you'll never yeah, get back. Yeah, I want to plug my special on YouTube. It's Adam Ferrara. It's scary in here. 800 pound gorilla records. Please check it out. It's free and you can laugh. Yes. Um, and my podcast is called the Adam Ferrara podcast. 30 minutes. You'll never get back. You get it wherever you get your podcast. Follow me on social media at Adam Ferrara. And, uh, and if you like the show, please send me a message and let me know. Awesome. Man. Hell yeah. Awesome, dude. Well, thanks for coming through. Sure. Good nice, to see you, man. Nice time. All right. Eric, you got anything coming up, dude? Uh, I'm going to be down in Richmond next weekend um, for the Traverse Comedy. Uh, me and Liz are going to be running a hot set down there, which is our show where we uh, we grow super hot peppers all summer long and then make comedians eat them and then do, like, you know, 10 minutes. So that'll Why don't be fun. you just write dick jokes? What's <laughs> <laughs> we do that, too. Well, we're also we're also just doing another show down there, too, yeah. but uh, a regular style. Um but yeah, check that out. Look up Traverse Comedy on Instagram. Come to those Damn. shows. And yeah, at Eric Laser on everything. Great. And I got, uh, where am I? Uh, I don't know when this is going to drop. I got Probably some, tomorrow. Uh, okay. Or so Monday. Tour dates. If you want tour yeah. dates, you can go to at Adam Ferrara. I know I'm going to be at the, the Ben Salem Casino in Pennsylvania on the 16th, the 17th, and 18th. I'll be at Levity Live in Nyack. Uh, cool. And then I think I'm at uh, CB Live in January. There's a full list of tour dates uh, on my website. Hell yeah. Jimmy, what's what's cooking up over there? Exquisite, folks. Uh, guys, first off, check out the new single on all platforms. We just put it out. The band is called Sophomore. As you know, follow us at SophomoreMD on everything. The song is called The News. Uh, we put it out last Friday. It's already doing uh, It's doing pretty well. I'm very happy Dude, I saw with it. I it had like 10K plays on SoundCloud already. Probably more mm -hmm. by now. Well, we have your brother who has just been recently promoted to clout manager of the band making TikToks for us. And so that's been truly, I mean, dude, that that Instagram really put out last week has done so well. And I was like, dude, Alex, you, you cracked it. You cracked the code. We talked about cracking the algorithm. You fucking did it. But yeah, so follow at SophomoreMD on everything. Uh, as far as stuff we're doing, playing uh, this coming weekend, uh, Friday, December 10th. I will be uh, with the band at the horse you came in on down in Fells Point. Uh, we're doing, we're starting this month doing every second Friday of the month as a band from nine thirty to close at the horse you came in on, and also that Saturday up in Towson, Tville, Townsville, we will be uh, at the Point from eight 
to midnight with the band as well. And then, of course, every Tuesday at Perennial in Towson, every Wednesday night at the horse, uh, 9.30 to close, which is a different time every night. You never know. 9.30 to question mark, as I like to call it. So at Jimmy Seleski on everything, at SophomoreMD, follow the band. As always, uh, at LFTS Podcast, follow Adam Ferrara. Check us out on YouTube. Uh, check out his podcast as well. Till next week. Peace. Peace.